0: As we jump into John chapter 1 this morning, as we think about Jesus coming to earth, there's a really big concept that I want us to kind of get our minds around because this is what John is going to try to help us see as we look at Jesus coming. When you think about every point, every moment, every story in human history, there are kind of three different levels in which you and I can engage with that moment in human history. So the first level is to understand the facts about that moment. So if we wanted to talk about the civil rights the Civil Rights Movement, and I brought up Rosa Parks. And I said, tell me about that moment in history. You could stand up, and the the most basic level to engage with that moment in history would be for you to tell me the facts about that day. Who was there? When it happened? And so you might stand up and say, it was December 1st, 1955, and there was a 42-year-old African-American woman on a bus. And we know the facts of the story, right? So the first level of engaging with human history is to know facts about moments in human history. The second level is to go a little bit further, to go a little bit deeper and to understand the significance of those events which took place, right? And so one of you might stand up and say, hey, December 1st, 1955, a 42-year-old African-American woman wouldn't get off a bus. And another one might stand up in this room and say, but it was so much more than that. And you begin to tell us stories. Do you understand what this signifies? Do you know what this means? Do you understand this? And so there's a way of seeing history where we understand facts. There's a way of seeing history where we understand the significance of those facts. But then there's a third level where we don't just understand facts or the significance of those facts, but we live a life that has been shaped by those facts, right? Very different. And so whether you know this to be true or not, every one of us is living in the third level right now of that truth about what happened with Rosa Parks. Every bus you sit on, every car ride, every airplane, every moment has been shaped by facts, filled with understanding and changes the way we live, right? We, we understand those levels, fact, understanding, and life shape. Here's one of the real challenges for us, though, as we read the scriptures. Most of us never move beyond the first level. And so we read the stories of Jesus and we listen to when they happened and how they happened and what took place and who was there. And a lot of us were kind of trained when we were little in Sunday school to learn the facts. And so we know the top level. And some of you, you heard those facts about Jesus and you got hungry, you got interested. And so you went to seminary, you went down to the next level, or you got in a small group Bible study, or you you started really digging in because you didn't just want to know the stories anymore, but you wanted to understand their significance. But here's one of the challenging things with Scripture is that Jesus constantly invites us to move beyond levels one and two into the third level, where we no longer just know the stories and where we no longer just know the theology or the understanding behind the stories, but we have lives that have been shaped by the stories. And so this is what John is going to do. John is going to tell you a story. He's going to give us some facts that most of us know. He's going to tell us the story of Christmas, but he's going to tell it a little differently than Matthew and Luke tell the story When Matthew and Luke tell the story of Christmas, of Jesus coming to the earth, they tell stories of what? Shepherds and wise men and angels and Mary and Joseph. And in John's story, we're not going to see any of those details because the facts that John is going to give us are much bigger. He's going to say, this did not begin in Bethlehem. This began before creation ever existed. He's going to say, here are the facts. Here is what they mean And then he's going to ask us if our lives have been shaped by them. And so if this is the only thing you do this week, verse 14, I'm going to challenge you to memorize it, to think about it, to, to recite it, to rehearse it, and then to kind of move yourself through these movements as we go. And so we're going to start in the first level here. John is going to give us this picture. Verse 14, look at it. It says, the word, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us and we have beheld his glory The glory of the one and only, I love that, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I think in order for us to see what John is doing, we've got to admit something. And that which we have to admit is this. The way John chooses to tell this story is a little weird. I remember a few years ago, I was in my office and I was reading through the gospel of John with a friend of mine. He wasn't a Christian. He was really curious about Jesus. And I said, hey, how about you come over two or three days a week and we'll just read through the gospel of John. Just see what happens. And so we're reading, and after a couple of minutes of reading, he stopped me. We get to verse 14, and he says, Can you answer a real simple question for me? I said, Yeah. He says, Who is the Word? And I looked at him, and I said, You're an idiot. <laughs> you know, I, I thought, Man, I've never thought that before, because I grew up always knowing the answer to that. Because when I was little, I was taught that the Word that John is referring to here is Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was before all things. All things were created through Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world, the hope of the world, the power of the world. And so I'd read John chapter 1, and the only thing that I'd see is Jesus. And so I'm sitting there talking to my friend. I go, yeah, it's, it's Jesus. And he said, then why doesn't God just say Jesus? He says, why does he say the word? I thought, man, what a great question. But I love it because John, as he is writing this, is writing to an audience that he understood. His church was made up of two types of people. He had Jewish people who were Hebrew in their nationality, and he had Gentile people who were Greek in their nationality. The Hebrew people had grown up their whole lives being shaped by their religion, and at the core of their religion was this understanding that there was nothing more powerful in the entire world than the Word of God. So they believed that in the book of Genesis, when God wanted to create, he didn't use his hand, he used his what he used his word. When God would speak to the prophets, the word of God would come to the prophets and things in human history would change because where the word of God was spoken, things were different. So the Hebrew people in John's church grew up believing that there was nothing other than God the Father more important than the spoken word of God. And so they'd say, man, this is significant. Now, the Greek people that were in his church did not grow up with this understanding of God's word, but they grew up with a very developed theology of the word. So 500 years before Jesus was born, there was a philosopher who came along. His name was Heraclitus. He was the father of Socrates and Plato and all these guys that maybe you heard of in intro level philosophy in college. And Heraclitus came up with this thought that at the center of the universe's power was this force that created all things. Who shined light into the darkness. Who was the light of men, as he would say. And the way he referred to this power was, as you could guess, the word. And so John stands up and he looks out at his Jewish friends who are shaped by their theology. He looks at his Greek friends who are shaped by their philosophy. One who is shaped by their heart, one who is shaped by their mind. And John says, do you realize that Jesus is the answer to both? That Jesus is the one who satisfies the deepest longing of your heart. To those of you that grew up in church, and Jesus is the one who satisfies the deepest questions of your mind. To those of you who didn't, and so he looks out at the crowd and says, "You've got to see this." And he goes, "In the beginning was the Word," and they're all like, "Yeah." And the Word was with God, and the Greeks and the Hebrews would have been like, "Yeah." He said, "And the Word was God," and they would be like, "No way." And you get down to verse fourteen and look what he does. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only sent from the father, full of grace and truth. Some of us have been in church too long because we miss the significance of what he says. He goes, Do you realize that the power that created the entire universe and held it together came into the earth and lived in a human body. And some of us, that's escaped us because we've heard it so much. And some of you are going, man, that is weird. And the answer is, yes, it is. But it's gloriously good. And I love what John says. He looks out and he says, this is a huge truth. God in all of his might, in all of his power, in all of his strength came. And when he came, he came as the word. The word that you both understand. And the word came in the form of Jesus. And this is what he's saying is Jesus is not just another prophet among prophets pointing to God. Jesus is not just another God trying to to enlighten the way to God. Jesus is the one to whom all other prophets point. To whom all other philosophies point. To whom all other thoughts point he goes Jesus is the central character of the story that God has been writing since the beginning of creation. And so the crowd looks out and they go, wait, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph. And he says, yes, but the story started way before then. And you've got to understand, he is not a carpenter and he is not a peasant. He is God among us. And if he is God among us, it changes the way we deal with him, right? I love this. He says, the word became flesh. This is huge. I love that when God was coming after you and when God was coming after me, he did not come after you with fleeting emotions or hollow philosophy, but he came after you in the form of a person. Because God knows how easy it is for you and I to reject emotions, right? Our, Our emotions are fickle and our philosophies are even worse. And God knew how easy it would be for us to walk our ways out of our feelings and out of our philosophies, but He knew how difficult it would be for us to get beyond the humanness of Jesus as, it be, as He beheld the glory of God. And so I, I love this. God sends Himself in such a way that you and I look at Jesus, and you have to decide whether or not what He says is really true. Because here's the deal if Jesus is not God in the flesh, then He's a lunatic. I have a lot of friends that say, man, Jesus is a great teacher. I don't don't think he's God, but he's a great teacher. I think he's a good person. If Jesus is not God, listen to me very carefully. If he is not God, he is not a good person. Because isn't it true that other people have come and said, hey, I'm the son of God. And we think they're what? Crazy. If someone shows up and says, yeah, I was born of a virgin. You think they're what? Crazy. If someone says, I'll be killed and raised from the dead. If they don't do it, you think they're what? Crazy. And so Jesus is either God or he is a liar. And John is making the evidence just abundantly clear in this first level. He goes, I'm giving you the facts. Jesus Christ is not just another man. He is God. And he is in the flesh. And this, this idea of being in the flesh is, is so beautiful. It literally is just John's way of saying very poetically that the majesty of God, the power of God, the strength of God has been made soft, has been made fragile, has been made vulnerable, has been made accessible. I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament, but there's this story in the Old Testament. There's a guy named Moses, one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world by the grace of God. And Moses is talking with God one day and he says, I would love to see you, God. God says, You don't understand what you're asking, man. He goes, your mortal body could not handle standing in the presence of my glory. You couldn't do it. It would kill you. And I love this because God knew, God knew that if he gave us the answer to our prayers, God let us see that we couldn't handle it. So God comes in a way that we can see. God comes in a way that we can hold on to. God comes in a way that we can behold. Isn't it true that there is nothing, there is nothing less threatening than a human baby? You know, I, I can testify to this. I have one in my house. Like, I'm not scared of that kid. He's not beating me in anything. You know, he's, he's little and he's soft and he can't control his head. It's like a little bobble head, you know. It's just amazing. And listen to this. God knew that you and I were so dense that the only way we could behold his glory was if he came in a way that was so non-threatening we could hold him. And John says, listen to where this story begins. Matthew and Luke have told you the details of the field. I want to tell you the details of creation. And he goes, you have seen God if you've seen Jesus. The word, Jesus, became flesh. And he made his dwelling. Look at verse 14. He made his dwelling among us so that we could behold his glory, the glory of the one and only sent from the Father. And a few weeks ago, I read this. Story. It was during the Queen's Jubilee. And so they were talking all things about the Queen. I really could, have, could not have cared any less than I did. But my wife was watching it around the clock. And, and I was listening to something that was going on in one of the documentaries. And it sparked my curiosity. I started reading about Prince William. And it was a story about as he hit 18 or 19 years old, he became really clued into the fact that the life he lived in the palace was very different than the life the people were living among him on the streets. And he started wrestling with this reality that one day he would be king. And he started going, man, how can I be king of people who I don't even understand? So he went into the military and then he made this decision that when he would fly, he would only fly on commercial airlines because he wanted to be around people. But then he made a decision that everybody else was pretty upset about. He went out into the streets and without any bodyguards, without any help, without anyone around him, he spent seven days living in disguise in the alleyways among the homeless. And the country, when they found out about this, were in outrage. They went, man, what would have happened if you would have been killed? What would have happened? What would have gone wrong if they would have gotten a hold of you? He says, how could I lead someone I don't understand? I love this picture that John gives us. He says, you realize God, who had every right to be distant, who had every right to lord it over you because he is who he is and he could do that made the decision to come down in vulnerability among you in flesh and make his dwelling among you so you could behold the glory of God. And I love this word dwelling. I don't know if you write in your Bibles. If you do, you should just underline it. The word dwelling translated in the original language is the same word they use in the Old Testament for the word tabernacle. The tabernacle was literally just this tent. It was this portable church, this portable temple that the Israelites would take with them wherever they'd go. And so back to the conversation that we referred to a minute ago with Moses talking to God. Moses goes, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't. But if you'll put together a tabernacle or a tent, he says, I'll dwell in the most holy of holies. And you'll be reminded that my presence is always with you. And so during the life of Moses, during the people at that time, they'd come into the tabernacle and for a season they were constantly reminded of the closeness of God. But after a while they were no longer just reminded of his closeness, they were actually reminded of their separation because every time they went to the tabernacle they had to take a sacrifice. And So every time they went to the tabernacle it reminded them that they weren't good enough to see God. And they weren't allowed to speak to God, they had to speak to a priest who would speak to God. And so every time they spoke to the priest, they were reminded that although God was near, he was not near enough. Although he was close, he was not close enough. And the tabernacle became this kind of crazy paradigm in their lives. And this is the word that John uses. He says, do you realize that when Jesus was born, when Jesus walked among us, he became our tabernacle? And that unlike the tabernacle that Moses and them would put up in the desert... We are not reminded of our distance when we see Jesus. We are reminded of God's closeness. Since says, Jesus becomes our tabernacle and as we go to him, like, did you think about this this morning? None of us came into this room. Like, none of you brought in a goat or bull or a donkey or a chicken to sacrifice. If you did, we'd kick you out of here. It'd be so weird. Why didn't you do that? Because Jesus is not only a tabernacle, he's a sacrifice. And not only is he a sacrifice, he's the priest, Right? And Jesus says, as you see me, as you realize that God has moved into the neighborhood to dwell among his people for the purpose of beholding his glory, the distance between you and the Father is no longer as far as you thought it was. One of my best friends growing up was Catholic, just a wonderful dude from a wonderful family. I remember one night in college, we were sitting there smoking cigars and we were just talking about life and theology and all these things. And he just, he said, Dave, I've always had a real interesting moment. He says, every time I go in to confess... He says, I have this tension in me because I know that God is forgiving me, but it stinks that I have to talk to another person. He says, that moment constantly reminds me that God is near, but not near enough. And I remember talking to Josh and going, man, that's sometimes been my story. Or I, I come to church, I come to the tabernacle, but I'm not walking in the new tabernacle, the new sacrifice under the lordship of the new priest. And this is what John is saying. He goes, man, God... Has emptied himself of his power so that you could behold his glory or his significance or his beauty. He's lived among you. What's the last part of verse fourteen? Look at it. I love it. it. Says he's come from the Father, full of grace and what's that second word? Truth. Full of grace and truth. We live in a culture that pits grace and truth against each other, don't we? And so you know people who are extremely truthful. They will tell you the truth about who you are in a heartbeat, but they're not very gracious. We tend to live in a church culture that's full of grace, but not very full of truth. And so we're quick to extend grace everywhere, which is wonderful, but we're very rarely courageous enough to speak truth. And to have grace without truth or truth without grace is to not have Jesus because Jesus is both. And he holds them both together perfectly. They're not opposed, they're unified in Christ. And this is the picture that John is giving us. He says, listen, God has come in all of his glory in a way that you could receive him for the purpose of seeing who the Father is. And he's done this with truth. In other words, you've seen the truth of who God is. When you see Jesus, when you look at his life, when you listen to his teachings, you have seen the truth of who God is. It's what Hebrews 1.3 says, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of the Father. Right? Right? Hebrews 1. But then he keeps going. This thing's not staying on my ear. So Jesus is not just here to tell you the truth about the Father and the truth about yourself. He comes here with grace to help you deal with the truth that you've just uncovered. Have you ever thought about this reality that as you see the truth of who God is, it's kind of terrifying when you see the truth of who you are? If there's no grace. He says, Jesus has come in such a way that you've seen truth. The truth of the Father, the truth of your life. And then he's come with grace. Look down at verse 17. This is one of the coolest verses in all of Scripture. We never talk about it. He says, but the grace of Jesus has come so that you and I might receive one blessing after another. Or some of your Bibles say, grace upon grace. It's the picture of you sitting on the shore of the ocean as waves come in. Have you ever watched the, w- the way that waves come in on the shore? One wave, and then another wave, and then another wave. And they never quit coming. As one wave washes up, another one lapses it, right? And he says, this becomes your interaction with God as you see the truth of who he is in Jesus. The grace of Jesus is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. I love this. John goes, these are the facts of the story. God becomes flesh so you could behold his glory. He did this among you so you receive grace and truth. That's level one. Verses two through 13, he unpacks level two, and we're not going to hit every verse, but I want you to see the big concepts. He says, these are the facts. He goes, this is what they mean Did you realize if God really became flesh, this is what it means first. It means that nobody understands you the way that Jesus understands you. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there's a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied about this moment that John is talking about with Jesus being born. It says, you will call him everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace, and wonderful counselor. Isn't it true that the best counselors are the people? who have been where you've been, but have come out stronger than you've come out. And so those of you whose parents have been divorced, you want to talk to someone whose parents have been divorced, right? Those of you that have struggled with addictions, you want to talk with someone that's struggled with addiction, but that's come out on the other side, right? Because the best counselors are the ones that understand where you are and give you hopes for where you could be. And I love this. If this is true, if the facts about Jesus are true, the, de- the first implication is that Jesus earns the right to be your counselor because He has been where you've been, but He stood stronger than you've stood. And no one understands you the way that Jesus does. Your loneliness, your pain, your rejection, your fear, even your doubt, Jesus understands it. And yet the great difference between Jesus and me, Jesus and you, is that Jesus stands when we fall. And so our counselor speaks into our experiences but he speaks in ways that have life and, and and real real weight because he's withstood them it's what hebrews chapter 4 says is that we have a priest who understands us and he's not dis- he gets everything you've been through the, the second implication is not just that jesus understands you the second implication is that god has heard your cries that heaven has turned on the lights and that jesus has come for your rescue That God has heard your cries, that heaven has turned on the lights, and that Jesus has come for your rescue. This is what you see over and over, light into the darkness, over and over. These are the pictures he gives us in these 12 verses. There's a story, if you were in intro level psychology class in college, you've heard this story, I'm sure. 1964, the East Village in New York City, there's a woman named Catherine Genovese. She is a bartender, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, she's coming home from the late shift. And a man sees her in the parking lot and he follows her back to her apartment. And when she's 100 feet from her front door, he begins to stab her. She cries out in the middle of the night, He's killing me, he's killing me, he's killing me. And reports uh, go off that 38 apartments turned on their lights to hear and to see what was going on. So people heard this woman's yells, they heard her cries, they flip on all the lights. And her attacker, because he sees the lights flipped on in the apartments above, he flees. He runs away and he hides in the shadows. And after about 10 minutes, he realized no one came down to help her. And so he returns to do what he had started and he kills her. Two weeks later, a reporter for the New York Times writes an article that forever changed the way that the New York Police Department responded to calls and changed the way that they did things in New York City. And there's this one one little interview in this article with a person that lived in the apartment complex that just kind of brought me shudders the first time I read it. He said, you heard her cries and you turned on the lights, but you did not go down to help. Why? And he said, because I knew if I went down to help, I knew what would happen to me is what was happening to her. And I love this. John goes, listen, here are the facts. Jesus doesn't just understand you. God has not just heard your cries. Heaven has not just shed light on the fact that humanity is broken. But God has come down for the rescue, knowing that it would cost him the same thing it cost us. And so Jesus is not just aware and Jesus is not just present. Jesus is a participant in all the things that hurt and harm. He's so different than us in every way. First implication is that he understands you. Second implication, that he's come for your rescue. And the third implication is that he is bringing us home. This is verse 13. Look at verse 13. It says, those of you that believe in Christ so when you believe in Christ, you earn the right to become children of God. This is adoption language, and we miss this because in our culture, adoption is very different. In the first culture, in the first century culture, there was nothing more flattering than to be adopted. The only people who could adopt anyone were the wealthiest people. And so if a wealthy person didn't like their own kids, if they didn't want to give their estate to their own kids, they'd go out into the kingdom and they'd find a kid that they liked better, who was more beautiful, who was more talented, and they'd say, from now on, you're going to be my kid. And they'd bring in this kid into their home, give them their name, and then give them the benefits of all their estate. This is what Romans 8 is talking about. If you've ever read Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit adopts us into the family of God. The Holy Spirit is making you... like It's Paul's way of saying, there is nothing more flattering than being adopted by God. And this is what John is saying. John is saying, Jesus did not just come down to understand you. He's not just here to listen and cry with you. And Jesus did not just come down to be killed. As you are killed, he goes, Jesus comes so that you can become a part of God's family in such a way that everything is different. Last week we talked about the goodness of God the Father. Jesus says, if you want to talk to the Father, you just say, Father in heaven. Why can we even talk to him that way? Because of this story. Because this story is true. He understands, he has come to the rescue, and he is bringing us home. And I go, man, if those two levels, if those facts and those understandings are true, there are only two ways we can respond in the third level. First way is that you fully surrender your life to Jesus. And the second way is that you fully deny Him. You know, we live in this culture where we've kind of bought into the lie that you can accept Jesus partially. You can take this teaching and this thought and this characteristic But John leaves you and I no wiggle room. He says, man, if God is who he says he is, he is either God or he is not. And you are either his follower or you are not. To accept him partially is to deny him fully. And John goes, man, I have written these stories. John chapter 20, verse 31, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life. John says, I have no interest in a church full of people that know facts and understand theology, but live a life on Monday that does not reflect the reality of what they studied on Sunday. And I go, man, if this is true, here's the question we've got to answer as a church. If this is true, how does it change Monday? How does it change Monday? I go, man, have we beheld the glory of God in the fleshness of Jesus? In such a way that it changes tomorrow. When I was a kid, and this is where we'll end. When I was a kid, I used to have Bible teachers that someday would, sometimes would say, David, one day, you are going to stand in the presence of God. And I don't know how you would hear that if you ever heard that. But I would hear that and it was like, crap. Like, <laughs> I've got to quit cussing or whatever it was that I was into at the time. You know, I've got to quit doing all... One day you're going to stand in the presence of God. And I'd hear that and I'd be terrified. And I want you to hear this for a second. There is a side of that that is super true. If you've never wrestled with that, you need to wrestle with that. One day you will stand in the presence of God in all His glory. You will see Him. And I mean, there, there's a weight to this. But there's a side that we never talk about. Do you realize that one day you're going to stand in the presence of Jesus? And you're going to see how wonderful He is. You're going to see for the first time in a way that is unveiled how deep the love of the Father is, how gracious He is, how powerful He is, how wonderful. And and you're going to wonder why you wasted so much of your life chasing things that were far less significant. You know, one of the greatest challenges for the American church is not the things you're chasing that are evil. It's the things you're chasing that are good. Good. And most of us have sacrificed the things of God on the altar of things that are good. And one of the challenges for you tomorrow morning is when you wake up. Is to not give your life to something less significant than the glory of God made known in Jesus. Guys, you have one life. We have one life. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. And John goes, man, this is Christ. If you beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. What will you do with it? And this is where we're going to go next week as we talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes into our lives and allows us to be witnesses to the light, just like John the Baptist was. The Holy Spirit who comes in and turns our bodies into temples or little tabernacles, just like Jesus so just like Jesus is the reminder in the world that God is not distant, as Christians, we become the reminder to our friends that God is not distant. But I go, before we even get to the Holy Spirit, you and I have got to decide if we believe, if we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the one and only, and that if in believing in Him, we'll have life.